How many of us can say that we have not seen a doctor for four decades? Not many people, I would say. Our guest today, Ian Watson, is one of those people. He discovered homeopathy at the very tender age of just 14 or 15 years old. And the practice of homeopathy and learning about homeopathy has shaped his way of thinking in such a way that he has been able to translate that through all aspects of his life. And so when the pandemic hit and people were going crazy with fear, he was completely calm and he made the realization that his homeopathic way of thinking is what has actually helped him through all of this. So I absolutely loved our conversation and I'm hoping that for those of you who are still feeling very anxious about everything that's happening in the world right now, that you'll be able to draw from Ian's conversation and get hope and see how homeopathy is not just a system of medicine, but also a way of thinking and a way of being that can really help us in all aspects of our life. This podcast is obviously a passion project. Every now and again, I think that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. It takes three or four hours to edit an episode. There's so many other things I could be doing in my clinic right now, helping clients and actually doing consultations. But then I have somebody like Ian come across my path who just completely brightens up my day and uh, it just just all worth it again. So Ian, thank you very much for your time and thank you for sharing your knowledge. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout podcast where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello homies and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangouts. Today, we have a very special guest, homeopath, educator, and author, Ian Watson, all the way from the UK. Welcome, Ian. Oh, thank you, Eugenie. It's really nice to be here with you. Well, it is a dream come true, and I have just had all my fangirl gushing out of the way before we started recording, like I said, so I don't sound like a lunatic, but I am just so excited to have you on today. Um, I have three of your books, and after we were talking, I'm absolutely going to get the fourth. Um, And your guide to methodologies was actually one of our prescribed textbooks in college. And uh, it's such a wonderful book. I know you've sold thousands of copies of it, and it is a prescribed textbook in many homeopathic colleges across the world. It's a bit of a one of its kind. I don't don't think there's anything like it on the market, is there? There probably are others that have been written that are exploring that same topic yeah. now but when, at the time that I wrote it there wasn't mm-hmm. definitely wasn't one that's why I wrote it I, mm. I thought I, I want to read a book like this I, you know, <laughs> there's a it gap was, here so yeah. and you're such a brilliant <laughs> author it's such a it's such a great read I just love it so we are going to be exploring a super interesting topic today which I can't wait to get into but before we do can you tell me a little bit about how you first discovered homeopathy yeah for sure I I feel like I got lucky because in my teens I got interested, and I don't really know how or why I got interested. It wasn't in my family or anything like that. But I got interested in uh, all forms of alternative healing, and particularly at that time, herbal medicines. And, you know, I started getting interested in the fact that I spent a lot of time in nature, and I was interested in the fact that a lot of the trees and plants that were just growing around where I lived were actually medicines. That somehow fascinated me, that whole idea. And then one day I came across a book in one of those remainder bookshops where they sell off the books that they can't sell. And it was like an A to Z of alternative therapies. And I remember buying this book and just reading it cover to cover and, you know, really fascinated by it. I was about 14 or 15. And somewhere in the middle was homeopathy. Mm -hmm. And I remember that's the one that really caught my attention. There was something about this, um, the fact that it it had been around for so long. 
and also that it was uh, a European, you know, it was a Western form of medicine. It hadn't come from the East or something like that, like acupuncture had. And and yet it was, nobody knew anything about it. You know, it was relatively unknown. And I didn't even know if anybody practiced it anymore. But I was just fascinated by that. And I that was my kind of wake up to homeopathy. And then I just started buying more books and studying it. And then someone gifted me a kit, which they'd had in the family for years. And I started using the remedies and lo and behold, they worked. And then some years later, I discovered that there was a college and you could still train in this damn thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> you were so young. Kind of, yeah, but I imagined it had kind of gone out of fashion 100 years ago because oh, wow. all the books I, I got were written 100 years earlier, you know. So I did start young and it was I was only 20 then when I started my studies. I was like the youngest person in the, in the group. Most people were coming to it later in life. Mm. And so that's why I feel I really got lucky. And uh, that set me on my path. Mm-hmm. I just want to add a quick question in there. What was it like for you practicing as such a young person? Because we, we've got a few mums here in Perth who are about to start their homeopathic journey because you couldn't study homeopathy in Australia for a couple of years. We now have a college again. And um, I just as a, as a young person, what was that like? I just loved it. It was the best time yeah. of my life. And Amazing. I think it, it gave me an advantage because I didn't seem to have a lot of the worries and fears that mm. I noticed some of my peers, you know, and colleagues had. I just didn't seem to t- take any of that on. I was just dying to get going with the practice. I started, I was practicing before I even went to college. Wow. <laughs> so you were raring and to go. I was just raring to go because I couldn't deny my own experience. I'd already been using homeopathy for, for a number of years on humans and animals and seeing great results and when it didn't work just nothing happened so that one didn't seem like a big deal to me you know I I just didn't worry about it and I had a very kind of open uh, approach to it and I had good teachers as well who were, who were very encouraging you know they were basically like yeah go for it <laughs> amazing so, yeah it wasn't it wasn't a disadvantage being young I think I felt like it gave me an advantage I'm really glad to hear that because there was uh, we've got a couple of young girls on reception, 19 and 20 year old, and I've been encouraging them to get into homeopathy. So that's really great to hear. Um, now we have a nice meaty topic that we're going to get into today, which we uh, I haven't really seen this talked about anywhere else except for you, but you have obviously lots of other practices that you draw on alongside the homeopathy. And it is how you were saying how the principles of homeopathy can really be used as sort of principles for life. And we were just, I was just telling you before we started recording that I listened to an an interview that you did 22 years ago. And you were saying that one day you're going to write this book uh, because you're entertaining this idea of, of how the principles of homeopathy can actually be seen as principles for life. So I am just excited to hear, you know, what, how you came up with this concept and what you would like to tell our listeners around this. Yeah, for sure. And I think the reason I mentioned that as a possible topic, because it was kind of fresh in my mind, relatively. Mm. And uh, that arose as a result of the country going into lockdown, which I know your country did too. February, March, I think it was 2019, was it? (laughs) 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 Two years ago, my God. And and I remember a lot of people, you know, getting freaked out by that and losing their heads. And I also remember noticing that I really wasn't that concerned. You know, it didn't look to me like something we should be panicking over. First of all, because we have homeopathy, we know the remedies have worked for 200 years. They've with all kinds of epidemics. And, you know, to me, it was just like, this is a good time for the homeopaths to get busy. You know, <laughs> we know how to respond to these things. 
But what, what floated into my mind was the a kind of recollection that I hadn't seen a doctor for 43 years at that point. It was 1977, the last time I saw a doctor. <laughs> I remember it well. And and then associated with that came the thought, the, the, the memory that, well, I started studying homeopathy about that time. You know, by myself, that's when I started buying books and really getting into it when I was about 16. I thought, well, those two things are connected. You know, homeopathy has helped me to stay healthy. And it's not to say I've never been ill. Of course, I've been sick. But I've known, I've learned, I learned how to navigate through health challenges with the help of homeopathy. And then I started to reflect on it. And I realized it's not just the fact that I learned remedies. It's the fact that homeopathy opened me to this way of looking at life and health and disease and healing and all of that in a really deep way. And I think a lot of that is unconscious when you're learning homeopathy. It's just kind of seeping into you somehow. And you don't realize it's changing your worldview until you do. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, usually when you run into a friend who you haven't seen for a while and you realize, oh, you know, I'm actually speaking from a different place now. I've got a different understanding of how all this works. So I just had this uh, tremendous sense of gratitude to homeopathy for kind of opening that window for me. And when I reflected back on it, I thought, well, you know, those things that I learned early on in my homeopathic studies, they're still as relevant today and, and as helpful today. And I think that's why homeopathy endures despite all efforts to get rid of it and, you know, eradicate it and so on. To me, homeopathy endures because it's built on, on truth. Mm. There's something that's fundamentally true that is the foundation of homeopathy and in a sense, you can't argue with that. <laughs> you can try, <laughs> you know, and you can make it difficult for people to practice based on it. But the truth of it remains mm -hmm. and it will inevitably reassert itself because that's just what happens in, in nature. You know, what's true is true. It doesn't go away just because someone disagrees with it. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is just as a starting point, if you think about the, the, the basic principle of homeopathy, we know is law of similars principle of similars, let's call it that. The idea being that any substance that can produce symptoms in a healthy person, is, it's capable of curing similar symptoms in someone who's sick. Hahnemann recognizing that in late 1700s, whenever it was, that was like the, to me, that was the, the Newton's apple moment of homeopathy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the kind of insight that he must have had? It's like, oh, my God, this is why this, you know, cinchona bark can cure malarial fevers. Mm -hmm. He dosed himself with it and discovered it's creating mm -hmm. the same symptoms. Now, his next thought, because he was scientific, his next thought was probably it could be a coincidence, mm -hmm. right? It could just be coincidental that this substance produces similar symptoms to the one it cures. Mm -hmm. so, so what does he do? Well, let's try some other substances. Mm -hmm that have a, rep a curative reputation, some of the herbal things that are known to be curative. Let's try them mm -hmm. and see. So he tested those. And you know what? They all seem to conform to the same principle. That that must have been the mind blower for him. That's I can only imagine how exciting yeah. that must have been. Because what's happened there, he's, he's uncovered a, a hidden principle in nature, mm -hmm. which, which was always there. And, it, and it's popped up from time to time. You know, he found reference to it in the ancient Greek writings, Hippocrates, and so on. He found examples where one disease had seemed to eliminate a similar disease in the same person. So he'd, he'd seen all these examples in medical history, but no one had really uncovered it as a principle. 
and found a way to systematically turn that into a system of healing. That was down to Hahnemann's genius. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's that's the first thing that I would point to is that homeopathy has this foundation, which is really solid. And that idea that there's something in nature which is benevolent, like the intelligence behind life, whatever we call that, if, you, if you're religious, you call that God, but you don't have to be religious to acknowledge that there's an intelligence that's behind life, that something is doing it. We're not. <laughs> you put an acorn in the ground, it turns into an oak tree. It's not random. You know, there's, there's some miraculous intelligence that knows how to grow stuff. It knows how to heal bodies and replicate cells and all of this. That intelligence also has built into it the knowledge of, of how to heal. Mm. And it's something that we can we can participate in that process by learning you know, and that to me is fascinating that homeopathy requires, we have to engage with the process. Provings have to happen. People have to test the medicines to, to make it conscious, whatever it is that, you know, the healing power that's hidden in the substance has to be brought out into the open. But once that's been done, everyone can benefit from that information forever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it becomes something that's part of the collective homeopathic pool of knowledge, which is just amazing. So none of the things that homeopathy that Hahnemann discovered ever became obsolete or mm. irrelevant. We're still using the same down remedies that he said were effective 200 years ago. We just keep adding and discovering new uses for them. So that to me would be an example of what I mean by when I started reflecting on this thing, it's like, that's amazing that Hahnemann, he discovered something that's hidden in nature. So that, that was the first thing that kind of got me excited was that I think the principle of homeopathy, principle of similars, points to the fact that there's an intelligence in nature and that there's also a benevolence in nature. Mm. We've been gifted with the ability to find a remedy for any kind of ailment that humans and even non-humans can suffer from if we're willing to do the work. Mm. Yeah, we have to participate and, and do some work to uncover that knowledge, but it's available to us. And, and Hahnemann's shown us the, the map mm. for how we can navigate that territory. So then you think, well, what's the next kind of foundational piece of homeopathy and in no particular order similars is number one that's the base basically Mm -hmm. then the next thing that Hahnemann developed what he was up against was well some of these medicines are fantastic as curative arsenic mercury belladonna Mm -hmm. but they're also deadly poisons so this is problematic because how do you find the dose that can cure the person without killing or poisoning them in the process now that happens to be the same problem that plagues pharmaceutical industry to this day yeah yeah <laughs> they haven't figured that one out no right now imagine this Hahnemann solved that problem 200 years ago mm. he solved it for for everyone for all time how by introducing the idea of potentization mm. that we can take the original substance and if we dilute it but not just dilute it we dilute it and we also increase the energy of it by what he called succussion mm-hmm. which is shaking with an impact if we include that component, then you can dilute to a point where it's no longer harmful. It's perfectly safe. You can give it to a baby. It's no big deal. And yet something of the signature of the substance has been remained and even amplified hmm. so that its uh, medicinal capability is still there. Now, how is that possible? And this is a big stumbling block for materially minded people, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. homeopathy must be nonsense because you dilute it so much, there's nothing in it materially. That's what they say. 
Well, we know that those remedies work just fine. You know, homeopathy doesn't seem to care that it <laughs> it shouldn't work. You know, <laughs> it's like the bees. You know, they're they're not supposed to be able to fly, right? With those oh, tiny little wings. I they say with gravity as well. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean we're flying off the face of the earth. Gravity doesn't exactly. seem to mind. It still keeps us on the planet. <laughs> exactly. So, one of the things that to me is fascinating about that is that. What the doorway that Hahnemann opened there was that we have to consider life energetically and not materialistically. Mm. And that's important because homeopathy doesn't make sense as long as you stay in a materialistic mindset. That's why a lot of people just can't grasp it. Mm. And they, you know, even if they try and get their heads around it, at a certain point, just, this just doesn't make sense. You've diluted beyond the point there's any molecules left of the original substance. This cannot work. But as soon as you drop a materialistic um, approach to life, and and let's face it, physics dropped it in the early 1900s, right? When when physics got to a certain point of investigating matter, and you went we went into what's called the quantum physics mm. era, what did they discover? Vast amounts of empty space. <laughs> <laughs> With the appearance of waves and particles, this is like they're not actually particles. It's the appearance which are in such high velocity motion that it creates the illusion of solidity. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's the basic conclusion that for the physicists came to over a hundred years ago. That there's nothing there. It's not solid. It's energy vibrating at high frequency, which creates the illusion of of permanence and mm. solidity. So, what's medicine playing at? It's a hundred years behind basic understanding of physics, still adhering to the idea that it's all just biological and chemical. This is an outmoded idea. Mm. And Hahnemann just happened to be a hundred years ahead of his time, at least. <laughs> because he, you know, he realized that he embraced that already, that disease and cure take place on what he called a dynamic plane, which is just another way of talking about that there's an energy system that's at work mm that is part and parcel of what we're witnessing and experiencing in terms of our physiology. And the whole thing is energetic. The whole universe is energy. It's just showing up in different forms. Now, as soon as you open your mind to that possibility, homeopathy makes perfect sense. <laughs> it really does. Right? <laughs> as does acupuncture, mm. as does shiatsu and all these other things that have been based on that same understanding. Mm. But if you don't make that shift in your consciousness, then homeopathy becomes like a stumbling block. It just becomes like an anomaly, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it has to be something that you have to demonize now because it's like the fly in the ointment. <laughs> yeah. So to me, it's important that people recognize that this is part of what homeopathy is up against, but it's also part of what homeopathy offers. It offers this um, like a bridge from the material world to the non-material mm. because we start with material substance but then we potentize it and we take it to a place where it's not material. And that, to me, leads into a conversation around susceptibility, which is a, another key thing that I learned in my homeopathic training was the fact that, and I can't believe that I didn't see this until it was pointed out to me, the fact that when there's an epidemic, let's say, does everybody get sick with the same thing? Mm -hmm. Turns out they don't. Even the most raging epidemics, there's a whole bunch of people who were just unaffected by it. Well, how does that work? <laughs> First of all, you know, if, if this disease agent is supposedly so pathogenic and so virulent, you know, and it's out to kill us, mm -hmm. how come there's a whole bunch of the population are just un unaffected by it? Mm 
Mm-hmm. Or at, at worst, they get a, a minor cold, you know, like symptoms, something like this. So that's one aspect of susceptibility is that if we're not receptive to whatever seems to be going around at a particular time, we don't get sick. It doesn't mm-hmm. have that power mm-hmm. to make us sick in and of itself. We have to, again, we have to participate in the getting sick process. So that's a, that was an eye opener for me. It was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of obvious when you think about it. It's never the case that everybody gets sick with the same thing at the same time. Mm. And then you look at the other side of that. What I realized was that homeopaths are utilizing susceptibility in a positive way. That's how we can get away with using these super dilute substances. We're giving a medicine that has to match vibrationally. It has to be a match, which is why we have to take a detailed case. We have to get symptom similarity has to be lined up. If that's the case, if we've done our work properly, that person is super susceptible to that remedy, not to remedies generally, but to that one. So we can give it to anybody else and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. You give one dose of it to that person and like, whoa. (laughs) I've never (laughs) thought of susceptibility that way. But yes, absolutely. We are are using that to our advantage. I've always thought about it the first way, not the second. Yeah. I know, right? Again, it blew my mind when I saw (laughs) that. I was like, oh, wow. That's that's it's actually an important piece of understanding how homeopathy works as as an energy medicine. And not not just homeopathy, but how all energy medicines work, right? How can can an acupuncturist stick a needle in some point on the finger and have an effect on the liver? You know, it's the same idea, right? Again, it has to match. It has to mm. match the, it has to have a resonant frequency with mm. where the person is in that particular moment. And if it doesn't, it's just, you just score a miss. Nothing mm. happens. Um, so to me, that, you know, that's another piece of the puzzle. And we, in homeopathy, we talk about the minimum dose as being an important aspect of it. You know, we give the least that is needed to bring about a curative response. Mm. And we try not to do any more than that. Well, why? Well, one reason is what I've just described. The least is enough. If you're mm-hmm. if you're utilizing susceptibility, you don't need much. <laughs> Which anybody with a severe allergy knows that. You yeah, know, any tiny little bit of pollen or a tiny little bit of grass or yeah. a little lick from a dog. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or nut, you know, peanut allergy, that kind of oh, thing. Oh my gosh, yes. Some people now, this is a you know potentially life-threatening situation. Mm. And yet for most people, peanuts is food. It's mm. <laughs> Right. Well, what's the variable? The variable is the susceptibility. Mm. It's got nothing to do with the nuts per se. And it's the same with homeopathy. And that's why there's no such thing as a standardized treatment in homeopathy. Susceptibility is the key to understanding that. It's mm. like why we have to individualize. If we don't individualize the remedies so that it's a good match to the, the symptom picture of the person, homeopathy can't work. It can't work because susceptibility will not be engaged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we're missing somehow. So that's an important piece. But I think the other thing about minimum dose is that um, it points to the fact that nature is what's doing the healing, not not the medicine. Mm. So that's the other thing that I think homeopathy helped me to see. And again, it's it's easy to mistakenly think when you give a remedy or you take a remedy and you see a dramatic healing response, it's very easy and tempting to attribute the healing response to the medicine. Yeah. Right? It looks like that's what did it. Mm. <laughs> and, okay, we should certainly give them the remedies some credit. I mean, it's great that we, you know, if we didn't have them, we wouldn't be able to bring about these fantastic results. 
But we have, I think it's important that we have to understand the remedies acting purely as a catalyst. Mm. So when, when we're utilizing susceptibility accurately, the remedy is a good match. It catalyzes the self-healing response from within the person. Mm. And again, that to me goes, ties in with the first point. The intelligence in nature is such that self-healing is built into the system. It's built into life. We don't have to know how to do that. And we don't know how to do that. You know, if you cut yourself and you just dress the wound and basically leave it, you can just sit and watch a miracle of healing happening. But it doesn't matter how much willpower you use, you won't make it go any faster. <laughs> <you know? laughs> it goes at exactly at its own pace and it knows what it's doing and it knows when it's the time to gran you know, granulate over that wound and mm. form some scar tissue. And all of that is just taken care of by itself. It's miraculous. So that, again, it's built into life. The self-healing tendency is built into life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really good for us to know because it humbles us. It keeps us humble. So we don't, we can never get too carried away taking the credit. You know, look how clever we are with our remedies. Yeah. It's like, no, I mean, yeah, you've got to have a certain level of skill, but you've also got to stay humble and recognize we're not doing the healing mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's built into nature. And the best that we can ever hope to do is to um, find a way to catalyze that. And that's also so that really it, important for our clients and our patients to know. And I yeah. know I've read you say this, and it's something I always say as well, is we all have everything in us right this second to heal. You don't need anything external. It's all inside you right now. And yeah, um, yeah you're so right. And so it's important for our clients or our patients to know this as well, because they're, they are you know, part of the healing process. This is their unique healing process. We are not the gurus. That's right. I think you're, you're absolutely right. To me, it gets us in right relationship. Mm. to uh, the, the homeopathy as a therapy and also into the, the treatment so that it doesn't become like a, a dependency relationship on the practitioner or on the treatment. Mm. Yeah, it, We're actually, we're getting in right relationship with it. We're recognizing that it has a good role to play, but we're also taking full responsibility for our own self-healing capacity and recognizing that part is, is within us mm. and no one else can give that to us. No one else can take it away from us either. <laughs> that's that's how it should be, it seems to me. You know, that is part of the design. And there's, there's one other piece that I'll just mention, and then we'll see what questions occur to you. And the other one would be around the term cure. Again, it was a mind blower for me when I learned in homeopathy this thing called direction of cure, that there is actually a way that you can understand whether someone's getting well or whether they're not. Mm. And particularly in the context of chronic disease, but also in acute disease, it still applies. But there is actually, there's a kind of template, there's a map that's been laid out by homeopaths of, you know, times past. <laughs> Constantine Herring, I think, was the main one who, who kind of elucidated this mm -hmm. and came up with this term direction of cure. And the, the, to me, the amazing thing about that is that it doesn't just apply to homeopathy. You can use that as a, as a template and you can apply it to any system of healing and you can or any kind of treatment mm. and you can look through that lens of direction of cure and it will tell you accurately and unerringly whether this treatment is actually helping that person to heal or not. Mm. That's really powerful to me. Modern medicine doesn't have anything like that in its toolkit. Mm -hmm. And that's a big problem for modern medicine. So what that what it illuminates partly, I'll just mention this briefly, is it illuminates the distinction between cure, what homeopaths call cure, and what we call palliation and what we call suppression. Mm. 
Mm. And that, again, I didn't learn that outside of homeopathy. That was, to me, that was one of the gifts that homeopathy gave me. My understanding was like, oh, cure is not just one thing. It's not quite so straightforward. You can actually break it down and understand it in a deeper way. So what is cure? Cure is restoration of health. Mm. <laughs> That's what cure is. It's where the person goes undergoes some kind of treatment journey, some kind of healing process. When they come out the other side, their health is restored. Mm. They might even be healthier and stronger than they were when they started. Mm. But, you know, the, the minimum is that their health is restored. So they're not left with anything uh, as a leftover. And they, they haven't been given some new disease that they didn't have before. Yeah. As a, that's not cure. <laughs> so then we've got the second term, palliation. Well, what's that? Palliation is you, you get some symptom relief as long as you keep taking the treatment. Mm. And as soon as you stop the treatment, the, the symptom, the, the disease comes back just as bad as it was before. Mm. Well, what's that? That's most of modern medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you look at it, honestly, and just, you know, with that knowledge in mind, most drugs are designed to do exactly that. They're not designed to cure. They don't restore a person to health. The, the deal is you keep taking this pretty much forever and you'll get some relief. Mm. And if you stop taking it, you're going to suffer again. So in our mind, as a, from a homeopathic standpoint, we can look at that treatment and say, well, it might be helping you to manage your life and your symptoms, but it's not curing you. We can do better than that. Mm. <laughs> Would you be interested? Yeah. <laughs> You know, and then and suppression then is probably the scariest of all. Yeah, well, then there's a third category, which is <clears throat> suppression, which again I learned about only through homeopathy, which is that there are some um, treatment protocols where all that's happening is that the symptoms are being made to go away forcefully. Mm. So we're we're imposing something on the body system or the body mind. We're making the symptoms disappear and effectively having them be replaced by something else that's worse. Mm. So the intelligence, the intelligence behind our mind-body is doing its best to maintain health when there's a certain point when it gets really bombarded with whatever treatment it gets bombarded with. At a certain point, it gives in and says, I can't maintain this anymore. Some new disease process gets started off that, that wasn't there before. It's a direct result. It's called iatrogenic illness. It's a direct result of the treatment. Now, you will not see that in homeopathy. You'll see a lot of that in orthodox Western medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in some senses, it's it's brutal medicine. It's it, and it's heavy-handed, and again, that there is no context for that within Western medicine. There isn't that understanding that. I mean, of course, they talk about side effects and so on, but they don't have a deep enough understanding to realize that you're actually inducing diseases that are worse than the thing the person started with. Mm. And again, we can do better than that. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we understand how healing really works, we don't have to subject people to these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So those are my thoughts on that, Eugenie. Just some of the things that have kind of popped into my mind since we agreed to have this chat. <laughs> I love it. And um, so knowing these principles of homeopathy, you feel that was one of the things that managed to help you stay calm throughout the pandemic. Because where you guys are, it sounds like you don't have masks and mandates or anything like that at the moment. But things are just really kicking in here for us in Australia. And we have so many mandates over here. Uh, everyone's wearing masks everywhere. So it feels to me me that we are just like kind of started to kick into gear over here and the anxiety is very high for a lot of people over here um have you got any advice for people listening to this podcast that just feel really anxious and really worried um and the other thing is that our borders here in WA in Western Australia uh, has been closed the whole time and some people are terrified of it opening 
So mm. have you got some advice? Like what, and I know, and you're welcome to draw on other principles as well, because I know you use a lot of other principles uh, and practices outside of homeopathy, but what advice do you have for our listeners to help them stay calm? Yeah, it's a good question because I think really to me that is the real pandemic is a pandemic of fear. Mm. Well, that's, I would say that's the main thing that we're up against, right? Which is interesting because the word pan has got the same root as the word panic. Oh, yes. <laughs> interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I was thinking, is that intentional? <laughs> well, that's where pandemic comes from. The idea, mm. you know, originally it was something that induced panic in people mm. because it's like, you know, when the plague breaks out, what happens? People freak out. So it's understandable that um, people would be scared. But I think also there has been a lot of, fear programming has been put into us. But again, think about this, what we just said about susceptibility. That programming can only affect you if you're susceptible to it. Mm. And that's what I was so grateful for through my homeopathic understanding. I noticed a lot of people were getting really terrified. I also noticed I wasn't, (laughs) right? And that means that that's a susceptibility issue. So there was something in what I'd come to, to see about health and disease that that settled me down and it enabled me to kind of look at it a bit more calmly and to say, well, okay, yes, some people are getting sick, but people have always gotten sick around wintertime. Mm-hmm. That's not so unusual. And maybe this is a bit different to what we've experienced before, but it doesn't seem to warrant the kind of um, response. So I think that's the first thing is just to get it in perspective. But the other thing that I've, I've come to see is that um, our feelings are created inside of us through the power of thought. So it can look like something out there is what we, what's frightening us, you know, what's freaking us out. That's not really true. That's an illusion. Mm. That's why you can have the same thing happening out there and nine people are freaking out, but there's always going to be one person who's like, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what's the variable? Yeah. The, the, the variable is what's happening in your own mind. So I think, you know, to me, part of this pandemic of fear, it's an invitation for us to really take a look at that. And to see to what extent are we freaking ourselves out? And it turns out that's that's mostly what we're up against. Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting caught in something. And and then it, it's when we look at anything through the lens of fear and panic, it looks scary and terrifying. And it looks like we need to do drastic things to make it go away and to keep ourselves safe. You know, it looks that's that's normal. That's natural that we would think that way. If any of us get really freaked out, we think our life's in danger we'll do drastic things that we wouldn't consider under normal circumstance. Mm. So uh, to me, it is a kind of an inside job for each of us. We have to come back to a place of common sense and recognize that actually we're still okay on the inside and that we don't have to wait for the world to change to, to come back to a place of okayness. Mm. And when we find that place of okayness, then we can actually participate in changing the world in a positive way, then we can start to stand up and say, you know what, we're not putting up with this nonsense anymore. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that's, that is what's happening in different countries now. We're all just at different kind of stages of the same process. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I would say is just be patient, you know, for people. It's like, yeah, we, there's a certain endurance test going on here. We've got to kind of sit it out. But this thing won't last forever, and these measures won't last forever because they're built on a false foundation. And they're only kept in place by because of the fact that a lot of people have been terrified and made mm. to feel very frightened. That won't endure forever. That's mm. going to pass. And there's a deeper truth which is is emerging now. And once we get in touch with that, we regain our we, we start to regain our common sense and our 
our sense of uh, solid ground. You know, we, we know what, there's something in us that we can trust in. And I think once people start to recognize that, that they haven't lost that, you can't lose it. It just gets obscured temporarily. You come back to what you know in your own heart has been true. Then you can trust that. We've always trusted in that. It's seen us through all kinds of difficulties before, and it will see us through this. Mm. I heard the most beautiful saying the other day. It said, an ocean of water cannot sink a ship if it cannot find a way in. And I don't know, that was really um, enlightening for me because I was like, yeah, that boat is on there. And you know, it's, it can't sink because it doesn't have a hole in it, but the second, you know, the water comes in, that's it. So it, uh, it's only if we allow the water in that it can drown us, but you know, that's susceptibility right there, isn't it? It is. It really is. I have a little bit of a, uh, homeopath question for you for, because the podcast is mostly for the general public, but we do have homeopaths that listen as well. I know lots of homeopaths go through this. Now it sometimes feels like you can know nothing, even though I've been practicing for 10 years and studied for four years full-time. I find I get to a point every year or so where I just feel like I know nothing (laughs) because we have so many new books, so many new remedies. We have over 8,000 remedies now. There's so many new prescribing techniques. And just wanted to see if you have some wisdom maybe for the homeopaths out there who feel that sometimes it gets a little bit all overwhelming because so many homeopaths stop their practice at, at one stage because it all feels a little bit too much. Have you got any advice? Yeah, I, and I've seen exactly that same thing that you're, you're describing. Um, there's a couple of things I would say to that. I mean, the first one is that I think it's it's actually appropriate and true that we recognize we don't really know anything. <laughs> that's <laughs> that, true. Keeps that you humble. Does, yeah, it keeps us humble, and I don't think that's a bad thing at all. And and there is there is a truth in that because relative to what could be known, we don't know anything. Mm. You know. I mean, what, what's 8,000 remedies in the scheme of things? <laughs> yeah. There's, right? There's hundreds of thousands of just plants, you know, and we don't mm. even get started on the animal kingdom and the vegetable kingdom and all of that. Okay. So that's always going to be the case, that we're only utilizing a very small percentage of all the possible medicinal agents that there are in the world. So we've just got to, at some point, we've just got to acknowledge that. That's part of the, the deal is that we, mm. we, we've we got to live with the fact that we're always going to know just 1%. But I think the other side of it to me is I remember the fact, and I've read a lot of the early homeopaths' work, and I, I rem, to me it's helpful to remember that they were, they were bringing about curative results in cases that oftentimes were more extreme than the things that we're, than we're seeing today. Mm. And what did they have? 45 remedies. Yeah. <laughs> play with that's true that's true right and and they knew them so well and so intimately Mm. and they weren't concerned with just finding the the one remedy that did everything they'd find one remedy that would do 25 percent and then another one that would do the next 50 percent and then the the third one that would do the remaining 25 percent they were very content with that Mm. you know like zigzagging towards a, a curative response and I, when I read these stories, I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to emulate those. I'm going to, I'm going to chiefly stick with the remedies I know and get to know them like my best friends, and use them in most cases because I, you know when you really get to know them, you do you can trust them. You can trust the ones that you know well, like your friends, right? Mm-hmm. They are. They really are. <laughs> if you really know them, really inside out, they, that automatically brings trust mm. over time. 
And then occasionally, when maybe you find yourself in a situation where they're not quite doing everything that, that is needed, then you go outside of your familiar group and you add to your to your knowledge. But I think a lot of homeopaths have gotten carried away by all the new stuff. Mm. And it's tempting, you know, shiny new things. It is. I, I have got FOMO, fear of missing out, because there it just feels like there's so many toys to play with and I want to play with them all. <laughs> well, I think that's okay, but we should recognize that that's all it is. We're just playing. Yes. Right. And and all of this, a lot of this new remedies and stuff, it, it's just it's to, it's to entertain the homeopaths. It's not be, it's not for the patients. <laughs> right. We I think we kid ourselves that these are the remedies that are needed for the, the for these times. Well, maybe, yes, yeah, some of them, maybe a mm. handful. Mm. But actually, the old remedies still work beautifully as well. They do. They really do. Right. And we can easily lose sight of that. I, I mean, I've treated friends and family with COVID diagnosis and so on. I haven't used any remedy that you won't find in a 35 remedy kit. Beautiful. And they've all gotten better. <laughs> Every Amazing. single one. And it's been gelsemium, bryonia, arnica, sometimes sulfur to clear up that, you know, it's been mm. the regular remedies. Any first year homeopath could have found these remedies. <laughs> It wasn't that complicated. And people are like freaking, oh, maybe we need some special new remedy because it's a weird virus. It's like, just look at the case. You know, mm. mostly you don't. It's quite straightforward. So I think, you know, feel free to follow your interest in these in these new directions. Mm. But just know also that the remedies that have stood the test of time, there's a reason why they've stood the test of time. Your old friends are always there for you when you're ready for them. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I'm Maybe I'm a bit old school now and that's coming across and I, I hold my hands up. You know, there's no, a whole bunch it. of remedies that I've never even heard of. I don't even know what they are. But I don't feel like, that to me doesn't feel like a lack because mm. I know that I can do good work with what I do know. Beautiful. Oh, Ian, it's been so amazing chatting with you. Can you please let our listeners know how they can get hold of you and the work that you do? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, thank you for this um, opportunity. It's it's just nice to have these conversations. And I think if it's interesting and helpful for other people, that, that's a bonus. Uh, <laughs> my website is called theinsightspace.com. So it's all written as one word, theinsightspace.com. And that's where people can find um, I've got a lot of resources on there, audio and video things, articles and so on, and links to my upcoming workshops and what have you. And I don't um, do so much individual homeopathic. I don't do any professional homeopathic practice anymore, but I'm still involved in the education side mm -hmm. and I support practitioners as best I can with the work that I do. And a lot of the work that I, I seem to be drawn towards is helping people get out of their own way. Mm. basically and that includes the homeopaths because homeopaths are, as, oh, especially as the homeopaths yeah we're well, good at getting we're in our good own way that anybody, I think. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so, you know i used to run a homeopathic training school for about 10 years and I, mm -hmm. and i saw how people can get really caught up in their own mm -hmm. anxieties and fears and worries and then homeopathy starts looking and feeling really difficult and complicated and it's not mm -hmm. it's it, in its essence it's really simple and straightforward and the only thing that complicates it is the human mind. So that's mostly my work is helping people to simplify and to reconnect with that um, original enthusiasm and passion that they had for their work. Because when you have that, that carries you a long way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't want to get bogged down and, and fearful about it. You want to do it from that place of love and passion. Then you'll do your best work. Absolutely. So that's what I like to do. 
Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And please write some more books. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your time.